Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. How often does your team meet? And what do you talk about when you do? Do you use it as a chance to let off steam, review referrals, discuss significant events? Today, we have a think about how to get more out of our team meetings with the help of an expert facilitator and learn how to avoid inadvertently causing harm when team members feel distressed. And we've also got some great practical advice to help us manage patients with headaches. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor of the BMJ. And joining me uh, are Navjoit and Jenny. Hi, Navjoit. Hi, I'm Navjoit Lada, a clinical editor for the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Hi, and Jenny, hi. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. Cool. Well, thanks for, for joining me. And um, let me try and explain how I thought we could we could do today's episode. Uh, bear with me because it might not make sense immediately. So um, we've got sort of two sort of unconnected topics, um, but um, I thought that might work out quite well. And I was thinking about uh, when we last, when you go to a restaurant. We've been to a restaurant recently. I <laughs> review. Yeah, I, no, I, remember, Jen, I remember. I remember those. I remember don't, those don't things. rub it in. I remember them. Jenny, yeah, Jenny's in lockdown. Actually, sorry, Jenny, to rub this in, but um, sorry, Jenny. <laughs> Salt on the wound. Anyway, so when you're in a restaurant, you probably wouldn't order the same thing, you know, chicken for starter, chicken for main, and certainly not chicken for, for dessert, I guess. So I thought we could kind of roughly theme today's episode <laughs> on a menu like that. Um, does that make sense? So no chicken. No chicken. And no, and I, I, I was going to say, what if you're vegetarian? Well, but definitely exactly. no chicken. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> and and yeah, so we've got two interviews, two different topics. Um, and I, I, I'm moving on. Yeah, uh, and I guess I was wondering, are you more like starter main kind of people, or are you more main dessert? Because I can order, I can be flexible with this. You know, I, we've got a main course, we've got a shorter interview. So I feel like the starters are usually the best. Do you think? I'm a starter main kind yeah, of person. Me too. Really, but then, but then, but then I'd often want a, like a bite of a dessert. <laughs> yeah, have a look. You'll politely have a look at the dessert menu and uh, and then go for it. And then share share a chocolate brownie. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say steal a bite from somebody else's dessert. Okay, okay. I, I don't allow that when I'm at a restaurant. If you want your own dessert, get get one. You're not trying. To I feel we've like stumbled across one of T- Tom's core beliefs, which is yeah. Yeah. Do you not? Yeah. You don't order one dessert with like four spoons or anything. No, so that's forbidden in the uh, Nolan household. <laughs> Uh, I guess if I don't really want Way a dessert, I, I'll be happy to share someone else's. But no, if, if I've decided I want dessert, then... It's all yours. That's mine. Yeah, hands off. How do you feel about people sharing your chips? <laughs> oh, so, the same. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I think, consistent. Consistent. I in. think they probably fall along the same lines, don't they? If you wouldn't want to share yeah. your dessert, you certainly wouldn't want to share your chips. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we'll do start on main. So we'll start with headaches and then we'll move on to, to, to team debriefings. So whilst we wait for, I guess, our starter to arrive, uh, we could talk about headaches. How, how are you with headaches, Navjoy? 
Yeah, headaches. I'm so glad we're um, featuring an interview about headaches today because (laughs) headaches are one of those areas in practice that I have always felt that I could do better on. And I don't know if you you have this in your practice where there's one topic where you just consistently seek out for kind of CPD, even though you probably now know what you need to know for it in order to manage it. But I always feel like I'm missing something and I don't know why. I think it's because I often feel what I can do in practice uh, is maybe limited versus what a patient might be expecting. Um, and, And also sort of it's one of those um presentations where I find narrowing down to a diagnosis more challenging than than other things you know and that might be because you know time plays a part in that it might be because you know often um it can be uh, more non-specific or there's no obvious cause and and kind of conveying that can be quite challenging so yes so I for one am really looking forward to this starter uh-huh. arriving <laughs> uh I guess there's always that there's a lot of things going on, aren't there? Often it's about should should this person have a scan? You know, have I have I done enough to to sort of be sure that that you know there's not a brain lesion or something? Yeah, is that is that part of it? Or yeah, I think so. Uh, I think part of it is well, I think almost uh, if there are red flags or sort of emergency things, that almost makes it easier in a way. It's it's when there aren't those things and kind of manage how best to manage that and making sure I'm not sort of selling the patient short in any way I think that that often plays on my mind I think for the people who do need a scan and and coming reaching that conclusion I feel quite on good ground there but well I'd say that I've probably yeah anyway but yeah <laughs> it's always, it's always, some would some would disagree you know, but, you're right, yeah. just always worrying when you say oh, I'm on good ground and then I'll go back to work and have a complaint or something no, but um uh I Fine. Think, I, okay yeah Jenny, what do you think? Is this a, a fate? Do you do you like headaches a bit more than that? I also struggle with these. Hey, <laughs> I mean, I think, and I think the challenge is, you know, we we always fear missing something, um, and this is one of those areas where just recently, kind of coincidentally, I've had several people who I knew of be diagnosed with a glioblastoma. Um, in the past couple of years, like three people that I knew. And and it, so it's been in my head, pun intended, mm. a lot. Um, <laughs> and good. and um, yeah, I, I think I just, you know, mm. worry about missing this and, um, and, and don't feel confident in my neurologic exam if I'm really trying to parse kind of like cranial nerve involvement um yeah yeah well I wonder if there's a a bit of a gap for me at least between yeah focusing a lot on red flags and and that and and also not being quite sure where my involvement as a GP would end in terms of somebody who probably or clearly does have migraine or um or a non-migranous um headache and that's uh, well. I'm basically leading on. Our, our course has arrived, so we can uh, <laughs> we can in. have a listen to <laughs> to that. So I spoke to Heather Angus Lepan. We've spoken to her before, um, and on this podcast. And at the same time, because I was so interested to, to to learn a bit more about headaches, we sort of bolted this on at the end. So it's a few minutes talking about um, advice you might give to someone who's having chronic headaches or migraines. 
but also about when, if and when to start uh, regular medication or offer medi- regular medication to a patient. So, um, yeah, like I say, you know, after I took in uh, and <laughs> we can talk some more uh, in a moment. Uh, and that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. You're always a GP, whether you're meeting up with friends, relaxing at home or going to the gym. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice, available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. We go beyond clinical negligence claims to offer advice and representation for GMC inquiries and coroner's inquests. We even offer CPD accredited courses at no extra cost. It's the protection your career deserves, all under one roof. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. So my name's Heather Angus LePan. I'm a consultant neurologist. I work at the Royal Free Hospital and Institute of Neurology, and I've trained in, in Australia and in, in the UK. I'm, I'm inter- obviously I'm very interested in all the forms of migraine. And and I suppose the, the one or two pointers for that would that be to be comfortable or confident with the effectiveness of triptans if it's if it's a migraineous headache or identifying triggers i mean I, what tips would you give us for yeah, those I think, uh, I think the main thing is that if people are having a lot of headaches then you need to um, encourage them to think about using a preventive treatment rather than acute treatments uh, there's this phenomenon of migraine which is different from other headaches that um, using a lot of acute treatments doesn't work and, and causes then a, um, a an overuse uh, an overuse syndrome which causes more headaches so if if you're having several headaches a week then Acute treatments aren't going to help. Um, if you're having one a month, then triptans or, or even aspirin is wonderful, works really effectively. But if you're having lots of headaches, then preventive treatment with propranolol, nortriptyline, um, candesartan, or, or the whole range of, of different things available is, is usually really effective. Needs to be taken for a, a few months usually, and then people can come off it. And that's another thing I emphasize to people that you don't have to stay on this forever. Um, it, and you can you you can reset the system and reduce the headaches by taking it for a while and then weaning yeah. it off. Uh, and that's actually extremely useful because I, I I think that's one part of the consultation where I'm never quite sure is like there's, there's that barrier to saying well you know get onto the preventative treatment, but that does seem to kind of be this oh does that mean I'm going to be taking it forever? Then of course it doesn't. Uh, and a bit like maybe with a course of PPI for dyspepsia you might kind of frame it like that, you know, take this for two or three months and then stop. Is that, is that, yes. is that what yes. you would be yes. saying? Yeah, I, I, I emphasise that. I also emphasise that uh, for virtually everyone with migraine, you can find something that's going to work. So again, if you try one thing, one preventive treatment, it doesn't work. You need to give it three or four weeks, but doesn't work, then you move to the next one. Uh, again, if you say that at the beginning, then you, uh, you you keep the person engaged in the process of getting better and they don't lose 
lose faith that they're ever going to find a solution to it. Uh, and one last question on triggers, because that always kind of comes up, I think, with, with patients that often feel like they've looked into it, they've looked online, they can't identify anything particular. I mean, how far do you kind of push the diary and you know, trying to find every last kind of thing that they're eating and drinking and doing to, to work out a cause? Or is most of the time it just not really likely to emerge? I, I agree that, that it's 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 unlikely you're going to find a single food or substance that is, is the cause because most people will intuitively have avoided those if, if, if it's really consistent. But the one thing that really helps with migraine is regularity. So regular meals, regular exercise, same time to bed um, and same time to getting up and over the weekend. Don't sleep in over the weekend because you know, oversleeping is also a trigger for migraine. It's quite common to have that post, post-stress post relaxation sort of migraine where you have a really busy week. You, you know, you conquer the world, you write three papers, you do a symposium, and then on Saturday morning you wake up and you've, you've got this horrible headache when you were really looking forward to relaxing. So keeping regular um, is important. If you drink coffee and tea, not too much, but the same amount every day. Don't have 10 cups some days and then none over the weekend. Again, that might trigger the migraine. So regular, I suppose that's going to be useful advice for everyone. The more regular you are, then the better. Yes. Yeah. 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 Disappointing advice. because I, I, It's quite nice to, you know, I, I get migraines and, and I, I certainly um, experience that. Um, but, you know, it does take away some of the spontaneity, doesn't it? You, you still obviously, you still could do these things, but you just might get a migraine, I suppose. Yeah, I get. I guess not? telling people that they they shouldn't sleep in it sounds pretty mean, but but usually that if they do that, they do find it's yeah. it's really worth it. There you go. Not that I've had a lion for about eight years <laughs> since it became apparent, but that is super interesting. I mean, certainly since I spoke to her, I've, I've probably been a bit more um, confident to say that about pre- starting preventive treatments and 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 actually, if it's not working after a few weeks, you know, we try something else. And um, I think it, perhaps it, in the past it, it may be more okay. Well, we better refer you to a neurologist. Who will see you in a year, you know, and and it's not really helpful, is it? Yeah, that confidence, I think, is something that I could really do with. Um, so, yeah, that was very helpful. I also really appreciated the advice about kind of regularity and routine and that it's not necessarily one individual factor, but just kind of keeping with what you normally do. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. At least have an explanation as to why it happens, even if, even if perhaps you can't. You know, if you have to write three papers and do a symposium, then then you you still have to do that. But yeah, often it's the worry about why it's happening is is a big factor mm. to people's presentation, isn't it? Yeah, and we can often um, sort of fixate on that, can't we? In in a consultation, and actually, maybe it's not. Maybe our time would be better spent discussing other things unless it's you know a big concern for patients but um maybe you know we don't need to we can focus more on on as the the things heather was talking about um did she touch on at all um the kind of impact of preventive medicine on migraines that are linked to the menstrual cycle because my understanding is that 
those are so hormonally mediated that preventer-type medicines might not be as effective. Uh, we didn't cover that, to be honest. We only... That was really the extent ah, of our okay. conversation, actually. It hasn't been edited much. Um, that's really interesting, though. We we could come back to that, couldn't we? It'd be useful to to find an expert or even go back to Heather and, and talk some more about yeah. that, perhaps. I think so. I think... Um, um, yeah. And, yeah, maybe this is one of those instances where, you know, you have a starter, but it's also available as, as a main. And so maybe we can... <laughs> <laughs> we, can all, we can order it as a oh, main nice. next time. You can make it main-sized. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Fine. Does that mean it's, we're ready to move on then? I think that I don't know how far to push this this thing. I've already pushed it too far, but okay. That, that's let's clear the plates and shall we get ready for our next course? Sounds good. Okay. Good. Uh, so team debriefings. Um, mm. We've got an article in the BMJ being published. It probably will have been published by the time this goes out about how to conduct team briefings. In, in healthcare settings, um, which was one of the, the articles I worked on as a, an editor. So yeah, this is all fresh in my mm. mind. So I'm, I'm relatively up to speed on this. So uh, it made me think about GP and, you know, most practices have their clinical meetings, don't they? We have to have meetings to discuss things like, um, you know, safeguarding and, um, you know, multidisciplinary meetings. But uh, yeah, this article made me think about whether we, are getting enough out of them mm. or, or whether or even wh- why we're doing them sometimes so uh that's where we're going with this um i guess well enough joy uh, you're doing mostly locum work at the moment you, you get to experience the team meeting no i don't and i think it's one of those things where um you know i i often feel i should make the effort to seek them out in the in the practices where i i locum more regularly because um i think they are so important well from my outside perspective for that sense of um feeling connected to the team you know minimizing isolation but also i think just even knowing who the whole team are <laughs> like there there can be members of you know not just other gps but um the practice nurses the healthcare assistants pharmacists the admin staff you know i think um for someone who's not at the practice regularly that can be such a useful uh point to get to know people and to you know and that can have a sort of ripple effect into your practice and the work that you do there yeah yeah I think I've I've tended I've I've never really thought about it before this but I've I've tended to think that's the purpose of the meeting is almost just to get everyone together and make sure a a gathering of the team so they feel like a team uh, and maybe have a chance to you know talk through things that that are bothering them Um, yeah Jenny, what about you? What's your experience of of team meetings? Well, I completely agree that they improve connectedness or can improve connectedness. And it was one of the things that I liked the least about moving from an academic-based practice uh, during my residency training to, um, to an individual kind of GP clinic where... Um, there wasn't that kind of built-in expectation around meeting to discuss cases. Um, And there was a period of time when 
team meetings weren't happening. And and it's just so important just in terms of building relationships with the people you work with, um, in terms of understanding quality improvement efforts that are going on around the practice, understanding people's areas of expertise or interest. I mean, the, the number of reasons to have them goes on and on and on. Um, But I would say that I've also had my fair share of meetings that felt bad or that felt like a waste of time, to be frank, Um, and and where, you know, you really had to wonder kind of why um, you like why that time was being invested in that way. And I think are you, are you talking about the, the BMJ education team meetings that we were all... Oh, how no. very dare you? <laughs> I was gonna, how, do I, how do I answer that in a like... <laughs> okay, okay. I just wanted to check. Um, Sorry, carry on. Well, no, but, you know, I think, it's, I think it really is important, um, especially when we're all behind computers, when we're Zooming all the time. I think it is really important. You have to have, like, a justification, a clear reason, a clear agenda for meeting... Um, otherwise it starts to feel really onerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, get, I think another thing that, well, I don't know if this is new with the pandemic, but, you know, with, with the amount of traumatic goings on, I suppose in primary care as well as secondary care, um, obviously it's going to be more frequent amongst the ITU and, and, and et cetera. But um, it feels like there's been more calls to to debrief after you know, traumatic or difficult events. Is that is that right? Do you think that I've, that's just my sense? Yeah, I have that sense too. And I think, you know, there's definitely that um, existing practice of trying to debrief around a, a difficult event or a serious event. Um, and I think that happens uh, in primary and secondary care. But I think also when things are hard, just generally, um, as they are in primary care at the moment. And, you know, maybe these team meetings aren't set up as debriefings, but perhaps they they sort of turn out to be that way, you know, where you end up talking about a difficult experience that you've had in a consultation. Um, and it can be really useful to kind of get your colleagues' perspective on what's happening, particularly if, you know, sometimes when you're working on your own a lot, you can have a tendency to kind of spiral or I say you what mm. one I you're right, I, I can, yeah. <laughs> I can. <laughs> you know and and you really you know it's it's very helpful to have some someone else just sort of say oh I, I would have done exactly the same thing and I can completely understand you know why you're saying that and you know it can be really helpful to share those experiences so that's a more kind of informal debrief if you like it's not with the per- you might not have gone into a meeting with the purpose of debriefing but I definitely feel that that I have the same sense as you, Tom, that that is important right now and perhaps perhaps has been always. Hmm. Well, that's one of the uh, the themes of the article, not so much what we're about to hear, but it's about if that is happening, just be aware of some of the, um, the pitfalls or potential harm if, if you're if you're going to it blind, I suppose, if you're if you're leading a, a team debrief and it becomes very um well, clearly traumatic for, for those in, in the in the team, then uh, yeah, they, they have some good advice on how to avoid um, trying to sort of do do a sort of informal sort of therapy, I suppose, mm. and uh, with that. So um, yes, so that's one thing I learned from this article was you know 
be quite clear about what you're trying to do when you're debriefing as a team um, and and have some structure. But I, I don't want to give away the interview, so maybe we should listen to that now and uh, go from there. Sounds good. My name is Michaela Kolbe. Um, I'm actually a trained psychologist, but for many years I've been working as a... Um, as a simulation educator, and I now am the, I'm the director of the simulation center here in Zurich of the University Hospital. So debriefing is actually just a guided conversation among team members, during which they discuss and learn from recent events. So it's basically reflecting on clinical practice, but with a special focus on teamwork and, and collaboration within and across teams. Yeah. And I think that many debriefings, they sort of include a looking back part, like understanding what had happened in a difficult situation, developing a shared understanding, and like a looking ahead part, like how can we keep up the good work? What should we do differently? What problems might arise? Yeah. And one of the things that comes through very strongly in, in your article is about the there's a purpose or intention behind the, the debrief. Can you tell us a bit more about, about that? Yeah, so we just noticed that um, in, in much of the debriefing literature, so in the academic literature and in the tools that are available, the main focus of a debriefing is learning, learning to improve, learning what went wrong, just be, becoming better as a team. Um, but now during the pandemic, uh, sometimes as a facilitator, I sit in a debriefing and I notice that people are not in pain, but they are in distress because of the, you know, the work is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And this made us think about the other type of debriefing, which is comes in from clinical psychology and psychiatry, uh, which is also group setting. And here the idea was that after traumatic events, let's just get together and prevent trauma. And research has shown that there's doesn't work. There are even studies, you know, showing that people are at risk at being, you know, experience uh, another trauma just by hearing other people talk about it. So a debriefing is certainly not a recommended thing to deal with strong emotions to to prevent or even treat trauma because we are not qualified in many cases and because the setting is is just not not um, suitable for this yeah that's why i think it really matters to think of why do i want to debrief do i want to learn then let's go for it do i want to try and you know tr prevent or treat then be very yeah. careful yeah and so i'm thinking you know even in primary care where you know we mm -hmm. we, 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 go, we become gps because we don't like uh you know acute <laughs> medicine <laughs> but still we, we can have some fairly traumatic experiences um yeah, is that where there's a temptation to think, oh, I, I guess I ought to put, bring everyone involved together here and talk about it? Is that is that is that the sort of situation where we need to be a bit careful? I think it's okay to come together, but I think it's it's equally important to figure out does everybody want that, uh, mm. and what do I do if some people don't want this? And there are reports that people find it highly uncomfortable having to expose themselves or some say you know my strategy of dealing with this is i don't want to think about this um and i think that has to be okay but still i think from an organization point of view 
we probably want to learn like mm. as a team if that happens in, in in our practice like did we do okay as a team mm. but maybe the team is not ready for this after the event immediately so i just i just think be very careful and mm. nobody wants to hurt yeah yeah and i suppose that a team that's used to debriefing might do fare better in that situation than the one which has never done a debrief before and then suddenly mm-hmm. everyone's in this strange environment where they are and I, i'm not so sure about this you know because many many of us who are educated as uh, you know facilitating debriefings we learn in our debriefing courses you know you really have to go deep you have to explore people's mental models and their frames and that's exactly the thing that we are not supposed to do when people are at risk at or when they have experienced trauma so i i don't think that we are qualified to deal with this i think if if we feel people are experiencing strong emotions it's just okay to to create a safe space to sit together but maybe not talk that much just Mm. be there for each other and figure out what other support is needed okay so if we're moving to thinking maybe away from that more um traumatic I keep using the word traumatic I know that's problematic (laughs) in itself um but away from that situation to you know thinking about what GPs we tend to work in in small groups of other healthcare professionals as might maybe half a dozen or a dozen of you and you meet regularly as a team um uh what sort of things pointers I suppose without without us having to go on a train or maybe we do need to go on a training course to learn how to do that well (laughs) but can you give us some initial pointers to how we might get more yeah of that I think there's so one easy fix one easy, one easy th- a fix for um, a good debriefing or a good team meeting is come up with a structure like provide a structure for everybody to to stick to um, I think that there are studies saying uh, showing that when teams are left to debrief on their own they sort of drift away or they talk about the comfortable topics and not so much about the topics they are supposed to talk about. So I think any kind of structure is is helpful and there are actually tools available. There are tools published. Um, some of them are recommended in, in the article or mentioned in the article. And just following a structure, and the, and the structure typically is starts with setting the scene, like why are we debriefing and what are the rules of or code of conduct for debrief, and then sharing some initial reactions from everybody, like how are you doing, and then focusing on one topic um, or two, and then you know, um, making sense of it and, and developing like, oh, okay, what do, where do we go from here? What's our takeaway? But I think the, the, the trickiest thing for that is, um, is that we assume, especially as leaders, that people are, they're sharing what's on their mind when they join us in a meeting. And, you know, much, much studies have shown that that's actually not the case because of, uh, or because organizations struggle with providing people with psychological safety. So it's it's a sense that I can say what's on my mind without you or anybody else in my team and, and my supervisors and punishing that, me for that. I get, so are you saying that um, people within that group may, may be sort of filtering or censoring what they're saying because they're not clear on the, the ground rules yeah. or, or what's safe and what mm-hmm. isn't? I think okay. so. Yeah, because yeah. they're not, they're not. And maybe just mentioning that once or twice won't suffice. 
think they have to learn mm. that uh, when they really share their mind or, or speak their mind in, in a debriefing that nothing bad is going to happen, but that whoever is running this or leading this is actually saying thank you, even if it's something uncomfortable, but thank you for sharing this. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely identify with you. You sort of feel like you, you, you said it last week, so I won't bother saying it again. So I'll, I'll just assume that everybody still is on board with or, or is aware of the, the, those ground rules. So, okay, mm -hmm. so keep keep saying them, even if it feels like you're <laughs> repeating yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, the bad is stronger than good effect in psychology. So bad experience seem to last um, longer than positive ones. So one bad experience in a debriefing, like, you know, like not keeping up with what was said last week, it sticks around for a while. So we oh, have right. to be persistent. Oh, is that, is that a, a, th a thing we see all, all, throughout psychology or throughout in, in all different parts of life? Is mm -hmm. that? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yes, I can probably, I can probably think of lots of examples from my own experience. Um, Okay, thank you. That, that's super helpful. I, I, so, so I'm definitely going to, I guess what you said, any structure is better than no structure and it probably doesn't matter which one. And, and there are some examples in the article. There are lots um, of examples out there. Yeah. Uh, any other kind of tips? I suppose one, one thing you talk about is, well, what, what, what do you do if you see that people are showing signs of distress? Like, what, how do you kind of, um, how do you shift or pivot, I suppose, to use a nice modern popular word? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd press much less for details. I'd be more in, if, if I see that people, or if, if my assumption is that they were feeling distressed or that something else is going on, I'd be more calm and certainly inviting, but more like it's okay. Uh, it's even okay if you don't want to be here. Um, if you want to share something, that's fine, but you don't have to, so don't press for details. Um, I think that's one tip that is is helpful when debriefings go more in the you know emotional section. The other thing that I find useful is being inclusive in our language, like talking of us and it's like let us discuss X, Y, and Z instead of I want to discuss mm -hmm. that with you. So just you know including uh, myself in the team. That's a It's a move that helps people to to feel safe uh, and to be very. Um, Sorry, I was just thinking of it like, why did you prescribe that when you you know that you're not supposed to? <laughs> is it that sort of language you want to avoid? Yeah, the the you language is um, makes us defensive. So, um, being inclusive and in, in talking about us versus um, you and I is is helpful, and then being authentic, like you know. I cannot say that, you know, I really want to hear from you. I want to hear what's bothering you. And then when you finally tell me, I interrupt you after 10 seconds or I don't seem to make notes or I, I don't seem to listen. So just like being authentic, but also being clear or kind of what you what you say and what you do should sort of fit together. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important. Yeah, so um, you can, we, I suppose, we can go forth and, and facilitate <laughs> some meetings now. Do you, do you feel that was helpful? I'm not sure that I'm in a position just at the moment to be kind of facilitating discussions of like 
debriefing on kind of um, stressful events. Um, But I do really, I mean, so many of what, so many um, tips that she suggested are just really helpful for any kind of meeting, right? Like provide a structure, use inclusive language. When you, when you, um, have a meeting, like reinforce ground rules, set it, make it a safe space and, um, and to actively listen when some, when you've asked for someone to say something and, and don't kind of well, zone you, you, out. Um, you've shown you were really listening, Jenny, to so hear her take on that. You were actively listening to, to the interview. Yeah. <laughs> you came in. Uh, well done. Um, no, I think it is. It, I, I really enjoyed listening to that as well. And I think, um, you know, what I was talking about before about, it, you know, maybe more informally debriefing, I think it suggests that that's maybe not, you know, if you if you are having um, a specific meeting with that focus, then to be really clear about what it's for is really important. I think that's definitely um, been uh, hammered home. The other thing that I just wanted to pick up on was the point about feeling safe and that feeling of sort of psychological safety in that space, which I think is more challenging than it sounds. I think particularly when, um, if this meeting is happening in the context of something having gone wrong, and often for anyone who works in healthcare, that's your worst nightmare. I mean, you know, to, to varying extents of, you know, how much harm might have been caused. But, you know, we I think we all kind of live in fear of, and, you know, that can guide our practice to differing lengths of an error, of a patient coming to harm, of something bad happening. And to really untangle yourself from the emotion of that. Well, I mean, I don't think it's possible to do that. So how then, I, I think in practice, I would find it really hard, particularly if I was, you know, I don't know, the subject of a complaint or or the person who, you know, did something wrong, even allowing for the fact that, you know, these things aren't on one individual, they're often, you know, Swiss cheese effect and all of that. I think in practice, I would go into a meeting like that feeling very vulnerable and kind of threatened. And so the relationship that you have with your team, I think is crucial for that, because otherwise I just don't see how it's feasible to have, uh, have that, feel that safety in a meeting. And let's let's also be clear that how safe you feel in terms of voicing your opinion also depends on um, the kind of power mm-hmm. or lack thereof that you kind of have in that space due to a number of factors, whether it's age, whether it's, you know, um, some way in which you identify like your race, whether it's um, your gender or whether it's mm. even your level of training. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, it, yeah, thinking about this from a UK setting, it's it's going to be that rare, you know, if I was a locum at one of these meetings, I think it would be extremely unlikely that I would pipe up and kind of in conflict with like one of the partners at the practice, for example. Um, but it's unlikely I would be at that meeting in the first place, to be honest, as a locum. I mean, I hope, I hope locums do get invited to more of these kind of things. You know, I think it's such an important thing that practices yeah. can do just to... You'd want to be, you know, if we were, you know, to, you'd want to be paid, though, wouldn't you, to go to it? Oh, oh, yeah, obviously. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I had a very stressful um, uh, situation a couple of weeks ago, and uh, yeah, I was really worried about this patient for for a few days afterwards, and uh, 
I think if, if, if there had been some debrief about it at the time in a group, it would have been very, really awful. Uh, I think it would be okay now. Um, but yeah, that timing of it is is important, isn't it? So you've had the chance to, you know, let it settle and uh, see it a bit more more clearly. Yeah. And yeah, and I think that is helpful because then that also uh, comes back to another point um, about how being clear that it is for the kind of learning experience of it, it, it you know, and, and that can be done best after that sort of initial heat has cooled a bit, um, if, if that's what we're all in it for. Um, so yeah, that was very helpful too. Do you guys think that even with the risk of getting the timing wrong or um, potentially subjecting somebody to kind of like re-trauma or new trauma on the basis of hearing somebody else's experience, do you think that this is still like a practice of highly effective teams? Because I kind of think that those risks are all weighed out by the benefits. I mean, if you can't kind of learn together as a team, I, I you must feel so yeah. isolated. Yeah, I mean, that comes out in the article um, in one of the opening sections, uh, just to keep plugging that, uh, about, you know, it's one of the most effective things you can do as a team to improve and, and to learn individually and as a, as, a, as a group is to learn from things that have happened. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a balance, isn't there? You, you know, it, it might be uncomfortable. It, there are certain situations that are always going to be really uncomfortable to discuss in a team, but we do owe it to ourselves and our patients and the team to, to be take part in those. And I guess, I guess once they are established as a thing that a team does, I guess then that, maybe that makes it feel less threatening for everybody that, you know, people just know that this is this is what we do and there's no, I mean, hopefully there's no blame or judgment. Um, it's all for learning. I mean, having edited the article, Tom, and I look forward to reading it, um, is this something you would establish in your practice? Is it something that you have already or um, what do you think? Well, that's why I thought it was interesting because it, it was really focused on secondary care yeah, I think that's the experience for Michaela is working within um, secondary care, but um, but it just uh, struck me that we most practices have these team meetings all the time. Um, but I don't think we necessarily think of them as these learning. Um, this is this is how we learn as a group. They're, I think the, the the objective of them is a bit vaguer, at least where where we work. And I think we've always seen it more as a chance to to just let off steam, discuss difficult cases or um you know and obviously share information that needs to be shared um so yeah but i i think we will well i, I don't want to say and now we're going to change things because anyone who's listening for my practice will probably be like he hasn't changed <laughs> anything just as bad because i i usually uh facilitate the, our, our team meetings so so maybe <laughs> if any of tom's practice colleagues are listening that might be something coming coming down the the pipeline they, they, might, they might be. Might be. Um, okay. Interesting. So I, I feel like, you know, let's go back to the um, theme of this this episode. I feel like we're all full. Are we, are we ready to uh, get the bill? Or um, 
for me, like once the meal's done <laughs> and I'm feeling full, I just want to get out of the restaurant ASAP. So no shared desserts. No, well, no, just just. I I know that feeling actually when you just like I I I feel really full and I just need to get out of here immediately. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I do get that. Yeah, sometimes I do not. Don't talk to me. I know. I know. I'm, we're here to talk to you, and I haven't seen you for many months, but I'm done. <laughs> Do you know what? Maybe if you'd shared your dessert, you wouldn't feel so full and you wouldn't feel like that. Okay, Just say it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, yeah, I think we're done here. Check, please. <laughs> yeah, check, please. <laughs> I'll, see you. I'll see you next time. So thank you to Heather and thank you to Michaela for those interviews. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, do go to your podcast platform and rate us, uh, reviewers, uh, or let your colleagues know uh, about us. We'll see you next time. Uh, thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. And thank you, Navjoy. See you next time. Thanks. See you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>